Tonight, life behind bars on Rikers Island. Those forever changed by New York's most notorious lockup share how it became the symbol of injustice it is today. So should the city follow through on the plan to finally close Rikers for good? Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Rafael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg. Been on Rikers, speaking with inmates, speaking with staff, walking through Rikers Island to make sure we can get the results we're looking for. And we're also doing our job, investing millions in upgrading faci facilities to ensure better working conditions for the men and women who serve there and more humane conditions for the persons who are in custody. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. New York City jails are deadlier now than they have been in decades. 19 detainees reportedly died last year in custody or right after their release, the highest rate in 25 years. Many died at Rikers, which has been plagued by overdoses, violence, and inhumane conditions for many years now. So how did Rikers become the symbol of injustice it is today? And is there still hope for the future with the lockup slated to close sometime this decade? For answers, award-winning journalists Graham Raymond and Ruvane Blau conducted over 100 interviews with former detainees, correction officers, and public officials to tell their Rikers stories in their own words. These firsthand accounts make up Rikers, an oral history, which exposes the brutality and humanity of the jail complex. And we are delighted to welcome to talk about all of this, both Graham and Ruvain back to the program. Graham covers criminal justice and policing for the New York Daily News, and Ruvain is a senior reporter for the city, the nonprofit news organization. We're also joined by two of the voices that are featured in the book. Martin Craig is a retired Department of Corrections gang investigator who now runs a private investigation firm. And Angel Tueros is a human rights and social justice activist who was detained at Rikers for several years in the 90s before serving time in prison. Gentlemen, welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for Thank having us. Thank you. Let me start with the idea behind the book. And Graham, I'll come to you first if I can here. Why decide to tell this story by essentially going in, reaching in behind the walls and, and hearing the voices of those who populated Rikers? Well, we, we certainly could have done a conventional history, um, but we decided that we wanted it to be as intimate and personal as possible. And so, and we also wanted to showcase the voices of the people who actually work there and live there rather than looking at the subject from 5,000 feet up. We wanted the reader to be on the ground, you know, inside uh, the facility and see it from all perspectives, hopefully by hearing perspectives of officers and uh, people who were held there and uh, supervisors and commissioners uh, and others, we you would really get a, a, a very real sense of what it was like there, what it is like there. 
Ruvain, you've spent a lot of your professional career reporting on investigating Rikers. Were you surprised in any way, shape, or form by what you heard from these voices from inside? Yeah, absolutely. It was some of the stories were really, frankly, shocking. I, I've covered Rikers from different perspectives for uh, close to twenty years now, and there were some issues that came up that I, I just totally was unaware of, uh, including something called bullpen therapy, where the just the concept of of dragging detainees to court um, and how difficult that is. Just the idea of getting woken up at three, four in the morning, dragged onto the bus and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for these sort of like routine court hearings that happen. And I, I was honestly shocked. Like I talked to one of the stories that in the book where I talked to this, this person, Paul Wooster, who had done several stint in Rikers and he told me the worst part of it. And I thought he'd say something about violence, about gangs, about the food. So the worst part was this idea of getting dragged back and forth to court. And on average, I think in the 90s, it was for a felony case, it was you'd have to do this at least 12 times before your case was was cleared. And it's just sort of like this idea that just baked into the system. Yeah. Hey, and Martin, I'm going to come to you a second because I want to talk a little bit more about that bullpen therapy. Before we do that, though, um, Graham, let me come back to you. I, I think the history of Rikers is is fascinating and compelling in some reason, in some ways. Tell us a little bit about how it got started and and what it was supposed to become in the 20s and 30s, as opposed to what it is now. Sure. Uh, it, it started, uh, well, it was a farm, a very small island that that, that was expanded through uh, through Phil from the, from the Manhattan Street Network into f- about 400 acres. And it, it became a, a motley collection of debtors' prisons. There was even a, a juvenile facility there. This is all before the turn of the, of the century. And then... Um, the city fathers decided to build a jail there and it was supposed to be a model penitentiary uh and the the cornerstone and i'll just read it the cornerstone said it was opened in 1933 the cornerstone said those who are living who are laying this cornerstone today hope that the treatment which these unfortunates will receive in this institution will be the means of salvaging some lives which otherwise would have been wasted so there were, there, and there were, the New York Times ran a, a big spread with picture of the model prison and what it would look like. And, the, you know, very much in the history of Rikers, we see uh, the rule of good intentions and uh, how it goes sideways. And then fast forward to the 70s when the prison population exploded and the 80s, then there was a big jail building boom. And, and so eventually you had 11 facilities on the island in addition to several borough facilities. Um, that's so basically, I, I, one of the yeah. things that's fascinating about Rikers is it was also an enormous dump and you could see the the garbage fires from, from across the East River. And there were huge, enormous clouds of rats. In fact, there were articles written, this is over a hundred years ago, articles written about how uh, wild dogs should be enlisted to uh, reduce the rat population on Rikers. Yeah. And you mentioned this, and I was fascinated by this, how it had expanded from 87 acres to some 400 acres because of all that material brought in. All right, let, let me let me hear some of the, the other voices here. And Angel, I'm going to come to you first, if I can. I, I'm curious about your recollections of the first moments that you arrived at Rikers. The uh, um, that first moment when I arrived there, I remember... Um, uh, being stripped completely, uh, stripped down naked, and um, uh, 
with other uh, uh, detainees uh, on um, on a single file on a line, and and we were made to put our hands behind our back and squat while we were naked uh, online, so we could get a, a, a search, and then we will receive. Uh, our clothes back and, and back and get dressed. Also, we were during that process. We were placed in a bullpen um, in a very small space where uh, there were too many people in there with one toilet uh, on the floor, um, built on the floor in 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 what was supposed to be a fountain of water that did not work. So those are my first memory. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, Martin, Martin, let me ask you this. We were talking about this before we started to roll our tape here. Um, and I, I had been a prosecutor in New Jersey. I was also a defense attorney. And, I, and I've, I've often said that one of the more difficult parts of those jobs for me was walking into a jail. And, and the, the noise of, of the cell slamming behind you, even though I knew I was getting out, it still sort of grabbed you and, and just the entire atmosphere. And you had an interesting observation also. Uh, yeah. The self slam is always, it's nerve wracking. But my thing is a smell. Like there's a distinct smell in a new admission facility when it's the combination of body odor, bad disinfectant. Uh, you know, guys have been in the pen for two or three days. And it's 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 a distinct smell. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's yeah, yeah. It's I call it the C ninety five, like the new admission pen smell. It's yeah. it's it's different. And once in a while, I'm, I'm somewhere, I, I, yes. And once in a while, sometimes you can taste it. Yeah. Uh, I'll be on the train sometimes, and I'll get that smell. Like you could tell, looking at a guy's shoes, that he came out, yeah. he's freshly out, and yeah, it's just really and. As far as the bullpen therapy, I got to tell yeah, you. Yeah, that was my question I was going to ask you. Sort of elaborate I, I on what was you I was dying to elaborate on that. Good. Um, that is a true thing. And a lot of guys will tell you, like, there's things called cop-out sandwiches. Because the sandwiches are so bad that, oh, I'm going to cop out. And it's the bullpen. The, see, what a lot of people understand is that you really can't blame the Department of Corrections for the, for the bullpen therapy. You, if you have a court count of, like, 500, which, which was probably in the 90s, these these judges want certain inmates there as a priority, one. So if you don't have them there, there the department has to answer for it. So it, it sounds cruel and unusual to wake somebody up at 4 o'clock in the morning, but you got to remember, you got to gather them all down. You got to put them on a certain bus, certain pen to go on a certain bus. It, it, it is, I, I, I tell you, I, God bless the guy, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. No. So, yeah. No. Angel, let me come back to you for a second here, because in the book, you talk about your decision to join up what you said you didn't think it was a gang at the time, an association at the time. But why did you feel compelled to do that? Well, uh, I was invited to join uh, what is known as the uh, Asociación Pro Derechos. Uh, del Confinado, which is is, is translated as uh, association uh, 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 for the rights of the confined, and a, and the, that group is also known as the Nietas, and it originated in Puerto Rico, 
to to fight for you know for rights uh, 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 inside the prisons in Puerto Rico. And I I, I don't know the history how he came to New York, but I was shown the uh, uh, New York um, um, articles, newspaper articles, and the rules, and all the rules that they have that this group have are. Uh, what you know, socially acceptable uh, uh, values, and uh, they, they, all the rules are about uh, respect to the visitors, the the, the visitor, you know, um, of the confine, the confine that they sleep, you know, when you're sleeping, that's sacred, and uh, and stuff stuff like that, you know. So that what what compelled me. Uh, to join them because I saw the group, the way the group was introduced to me was, you know, as something that uh, uh, organized uh, the, you know, the guys organized themselves to to fight for um, for your rights, you know. Did that change? Did your perception of it, the reality of it, become something different from what you thought it was? Yes, uh, it, it eventually changed because some. Uh, members use the group uh, to to start others to deal with drugs and uh, and to assert violence against uh, uh, against others. I was in fact leading in one of the dorms and and was nicknamed uh, Tira Toalla, is the the, the uh, uh, towel thrower because the uh, the top leaders will send a green light. Uh, against someone, and I will ask, you know, why I will question the decision, and and will not participate in asserting violence against anyone. Because he was the reference being, the reference being in boxing after throwing in the towel to stop it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Ruvain, Ruvain, how, how about that? The, the the gang culture within Rikers. What have you found? We, we interviewed, you know, people who were there and, and many of them, especially younger, younger detainees were talked about, like literally one of the first questions they get asked is what member, you know, what group are you with? And one of the, one of the people we talked to said, uh, you know, he, Hey, he said like, look, I, we talked to one of the central park five uh, you know, people who were exonerated and they said, look, he said, I'm, I'm not part of anything. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not that. And, and he actually had to have a friend come in and say like, Oh, look, he's with me. You know, don't worry. Like he isn't. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it's so controlling. I mean, and to this day, we talk about it. Like there was this last year, there was, um, you know, there was, I think it was 500 slabbings and slashings and so much of it, you know, we talked to people who were, who were involved in some of that. And, and so much of that is related to the gangs and, and the struggle that the department has and whether or not to sort of segregate them to keep them in kind of their own units, like, you know, specific lanes for units for just the bloods, just, you know, other, other types of gangs or to mix them and commingle and, and the struggle of like, how do you how do you assign people and how do you classify those people? Yeah. Hey, Martin, again, from your perspective, talk about that struggle. You you are the voices of authority there. Yet there's another entirely different authority inside the walls there. How did that play out? Okay, we at one point the department had hired a group. I believe they were called the McKenzie Group. A bunch of kids, 24, 25 years old, who had absolutely no correctional experience. They were Harvard. They were smart kids, but they, you know, smart in jail is 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 not always a good thing. You have to use a little more common sense. So I was brought up in a meeting, and I happened to be there. And they said they wanted to put all the bloods in this area, all the crips in this area, 
or the, the Latin kings here, or the Patri is here. And what I would say, the Nectars are pretty much, they're, they're, they're not, pretty much non-existent now in the system. And I said, and my response was, why would you do that? It's just going to create more havoc because you're going to have one or two stragglers that come in there that aren't gang members. And these guys are just going to bully the hell out of them. But nonetheless, it was, it was, it was a big contract. They got paid a lot of money and they increased the violence twofold. And it, I mean, I was going to slashings two or three times a day because, yeah. you know, they, they have these, again, these young kids who never, never dealt with an inner city kid, you know, telling me how to tell them, correction people how to, how to how to place these guys sometimes it's not always by what's on paper it's by common sense hey i know this guy i know this guy 15 years i report him he can't put him with these people so yeah. it's but you know the powers that be you know i, I was just uh you know right right foot soldier right right and you listen to them graham how about that i know that as part of your reporting you had looked at that uh yeah one of the fascinating things is is uh, there's a story in the book uh from colin absalom he gets in, he gets jumped by the by the Trinitarios early in his stint in the 90s. Trinitarios is a largely Dominican gang. Mm -hmm. And this follows him. This happens on Christmas Eve, 1994. This follows him for the next three years. Every unit he goes to, the Trinitarios have sent out word to other members in other units around, across the jails. It follows him from unit to unit to unit to unit to the point where he gets to a unit. He looks inside and sees people he recognizes and he goes, I'm not going in there. Yeah. And, and, you know, th and this is, this sounds like a made up story, but this is absolutely true. And it can even follow you upstate, uh, th these kinds of conflicts. So it's very, very dangerous. Uh, they send out Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. They, they, well, to elaborate on what uh, Graham said, they send out what they, they're called kites. So they'll, they'll let everybody know who you are, what, you know, what the status was, who, who you had a problem with. And it gets, it's like, it's, it's, it's a wildfire so it's state federal it's it's just a, it's it's a whole network it's it crazy yeah it's yeah. a closed network hey ruvain talk a little bit about and about the the impact of of mental illness for the the folks who are inhabiting rikers and 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 what is being done if anything to deal with that i mean it's an incredible issue that seems to be getting worse and worse as time goes on I mean, it, it's a sort of mimic society where they, um, currently 50% of the population is diagnosed with some type of mental health illness or a diagnosis, and including, I think it's about 16% with a serious mental health illness. I interviewed uh, Anne Petrero. She's a clinician there who worked there for many years. Uh, and she told me this incredible story where this uh, detainee was just mentally ill. He would go around calling everyone cupcake gerbil face and, and slashing himself and hurting himself. And she she talked really kind of movingly about how she had a connection with him and he would he would really like harm himself and they would have to because they were close they would kind of call her in to try to get him to stop and she she talked about how also just the idea of somebody harming themselves like he would cut himself so badly sometimes he'd have to go to the hospital at one point she saw him and was just cut to the bone and she mentioned that like he he just you know he wanted to feel pain like physical pain just kind of block all his sort of internal pain that he has gone through in his life. And it's just become this sort of warehouse of, of that in, in Rikers. And the officers aren't trained to deal with this. Um, and, and the mental health clinicians are overwhelmed. I talked to another mental health clinician, Matt Frey, who worked there for many years. He pointed out that like just people were coming in and out of his office, that he just didn't have time to kind of help people, you know, kind of work through some of these issues. Uh, I interviewed another a, a, a 
a chaplain in the book who tells us a you know, really moving story about how he would come in on Fridays and he would leave, he would leave the sort of Friday morning you know, Jewish services and they would sing songs and he would do this over and over again. There was somebody in the front row at one point who had been there for many you know, weeks in a row, at one point just gets up and punches him in the face and he's just clearly mentally ill. Yeah. That happens so often. And, and how do you, what, it, but what is it? Did you have training Martin from your position as to how you I, handle that? Let, let's go back. I'm glad you brought that up. When I first started, there, there was, you had training in the Academy. Right. Then when you work in certain buildings, they give you a week of additional training. Okay. Then every year you go back to the Academy. It was a four day thing. It was called block training. But as time went on, they eliminated the mental health training and the four-day block training, they condensed into an, a, a one-day training for, for, for overtime purposes. They didn't want to pay the money. So, I mean, a lot of – I've always found mental health guys, I got along well with them. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I should say that. But, right. you know, I just – some of these guys, they, they just they just talk to them. You can talk, you can talk them down. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. you know, because – I mean, but I've seen guys, like one guy in particular uh, – his name was Whack, ironically. He would just see somebody and have no, for no reason, just haul off and punch him. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, man. And now, now you got to sit there, you got to write all his reports. And 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 then he'd just keep talking like, hey, Craig, how's everything? How's, how you been? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh. Angel, so, Angel, how about from, from your perspective, dealing with people who are clearly suffering from, from problems, how did it impact your day-to-day life? Um. Well, in, in different ways, like one thing I would like to, to, to refer to is that the beginning, um, uh, the smell, uh, you know, people with mental health issues, you know, uh, they urinate in their bed and, and, and everyone, you know, we, we're, I was young myself there, you know, we don't understand why this guy is smell like urine, you know, or, or someone will, will, um, uh, or the smell of feces, you know. So, uh, and you are in an open dorm with 60 more people. Some people don't take showers, you know, and 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 it's, it's hard to deal with that because you know to some extent um, that these these guys suffer from uh, uh, have some mental uh, illness issues, and uh, there were points where. Uh, uh, the, the one guy will smell so bad that other guys will pressure him uh, to leave the dorm. We'll ask him to pack his stuff and stand by the door of the dorm, and then the the officers will come and and score him out. Because if not, uh, uh, something cool have happened. We've heard stories about Rikers for for decades now. So my my question is to you, Graham, is why does it appear that nothing has changed? Well, uh, this, a, I mean, the, the population is is a third of what it was in the, in the early nineties. Okay, so that's that's so there has change. been some progress. There has been some progress. There, there's there's a better understanding that you don't need to have tens, you know, a huge number of low level of people arrest on low level offenses in the, in the jail. I think I think the population has it's down just under six thousand now. Um, there are people who want it who think it can be even lower. The city's plan calls for thirty three hundred, which a lot of people think is way too low. Uh, that there's not the capacity for it. Uh, that that capacity number is too low. 
so there has been change. I think the other change is that there's a, a better understanding than there was back when I became a started as a reporter in the 1990s uh, of the you know tr- treating people who have been held in Rikers as human beings. You know, hearing their stories, um, and and on the other side of it is hearing the correction officers' stories. I mean, you know, the the way Rikers is taxes both lives in 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 many ways. You know. A lot of correction officers, you know, it's a very high stress job. It's very difficult. And on the other side, you know, you, you, people who have served time in Rikers, it affects their lives, you know, and their kids' lives and their families' lives and in ways that just, even if you're arrested on a low level offense, it can affect your life. You can lose your apartment, you can lose your job, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. things have changed for the better, but then, you know, the, the buildings are falling apart. The conditions are awful. Um uh, violence has been a huge problem this this year, so it's it, the answer is that it's a it's kind of a mixed picture. We've gotten the population down. There's better understanding, but there's still very very deep seated problems that have to be unwound from the yeah. system. Ruvain, I've got just about a minute left. I apologize for such a tight frame, but what do you see as the future of, of Rikers? That's a great question. I mean, I think the solitary confinement issue is really telling in that there's a move now to kind of change it and strict and kind of limit the use. And you're seeing like incredible pushback. And even though like the research has shown that putting people in solitary confinement for such a long time creates this problem. I think that kind of like emblematic of like the whole records in some to some degree, right? There's a lot of pushback to kind of the whole system, right? From the violence, from the visiting, to like kind of out of sight, the location, the bulk and therapy. There's, you know, the research shows that like the way we're doing things doesn't work. And, you know, there's just a pushback. And even from the, on the smallest kind of most basic level, there's a lot of pushback. Yeah. I mean, now there's talk about possible federal receiver taking over. That's right. been kind of punted down the line. Yeah. I think that is a potential that's really hanging over the department right now. And that could yeah. really be a yeah. Well, once again, we could talk for, for hours. And uh, once again, the book is called Rikers and Oral History. It's a compelling and fascinating look at all of these issues we've talked about. Um, uh, well-reported, well-written, gentlemen, great. And and Martin and Angel, thank you both so much for joining us and, and lending your voices to the book and to our conversation here. Thank you so much. You all be well now. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care.